You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Priscilla Stuckey joins us for an exploration of her book, Kiss by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature. Drawing from many traditions and many centuries, Dr. Stuckey shows the reader how our interconnected life, whether it's to the mountain, the eagle, the tree, is a restoration of relationship between ourselves and all that exists. We have been missing this deep collaboration over recent centuries, and our ecological challenges express this story today. Making changes, each and every one of us, is the future story of restoring our wellness and that of the earth. Quote, the speech of water, the speech of earth, and the speech of mud are heard by those who listen with the heart, unquote, begins Kissed by a Fox, a quotation from the Sufi poet Rumi. Finding the holy in all matter is the journey described in Kissed by a Fox, from indigenous elders to suburban dwellers. It's not where we live, it's that we live in harmony with where we live and with the nature of other beings we abide with. Thank you for joining us, Priscilla. I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Well, your book is lovely. It's it's personal, and it's also a universal story. And I, I wanted, if you don't mind, to sort of first talk about your own um, academic background and involvements, because it's a little bit different from this work. Sure. Uh, well, I, got, I went to graduate school in Berkeley at the... Uh, I went to seminary at Pacific School of Religion in the early 80s, and then I did a doctorate at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in feminist theory and religious studies. So I come out of a solidly humanities background, looking at the world through through the lens through a very wide open interdisciplinary lens. It's a it, but it's interesting because the feminist movement was also about an underclass, which is all the women on this planet, which who for centuries have not been permitted to be an equal player in the world. And so I often think, you know, as and I'm not the first, obviously, to talk about this, but that the debasement of the earth went hand in hand with the debasement of women and children. That, of course, is more true in some cultures than others. And I I talk about my culture because that's the one I know the best, and it, that is certainly the tradition in the, Europe, the cultures that are descended from the European um, geography. Well, you write that you have a Mennonite background, is that right? Yes, I was born and raised uh, in a Mennonite community, in a Mennonite family, and I attended um, Mennonite church the whole time I was growing up. And how did the values imparted there impact the decisions you made both in terms of your academic focus as well as now this beautiful book Kissed by a Fox? Um, Well I learned a a very deep valuing of community where I grew up. I also learned some of its shadow side. Um, Community is difficult to practice and I saw certain ways in which it was difficult I, uh, it, it influenced me in that I went to a Mennonite liberal arts college um, for undergraduate study, and uh, that actually is where I got politically radicalized. People don't believe it when I tell them that, but um, that's where I became a feminist, and that's where I learned about all the latest developments in scholarly studies, and that's where I learned about social justice issues, and um, we were... Uh, uh, we were sent to um, 
Most students did international education. It was actually a requirement. And we studied in countries that had significantly different political or economic realities than North America. And so, uh, you know, most of the students on campus were exposed to um, the realities of the world, the difficult realities of the world, and what happens when inequality separates people and how to work for social justice. So that has been a really important um, informer of my of my views. You know, it, well, you wouldn't know this, but over the almost 30 years I've been doing interview work, I have spoken with so many people whose um, experience of an alternate way to see the world happened at that age frame. I mean, and I think that's fairly common. It's kind of a time when people are looking for who the who am I within the identity of their culture, their family, their religion, and also being exposed without necessarily the family looking over their shoulder every day because they're away at school. And so when you look at this change, I thought it was interesting when you were in your book, you write that you were working on your thesis when you had an experience that really shifted your worldview most profoundly. It shifted your paradigm even, we can use that word. So tell us about this. I imagine you're referring to the bald eagle because there are a number of them. Yeah, well, that that one in particular, your discussion about the eagle. Yeah, I was working on a a doctoral dissertation and... um, I needed a small vacation, so I went up to the Northwest and uh, went on a little camping trip, met a woman who invited me to come spend a couple of days at her house at, on Lopez Island because I had never seen a bald eagle, and I, I had become a birder in Oakland, California, where I was living, but I had never seen bald eagles, and she could see how deeply I wanted to see one, so I... Um, went to her house and um, camped on her floor uh, by night and and searched for eagles by day. And um, if you have a limited amount of time, how do you guarantee that you're going to see an eagle? Well, I had no idea, but I decided to sit down under a pine tree and I said, okay, eagles, I would really love to see you. And I just talked to them inside my mind for a few moments and brought to mind the picture of an eagle and how majestic they are. And I said, is it possible for you to hear me? I'd really like to see you. So then I went biking all up and down Lopez Island for a whole day. And of course, I didn't see any eagles. And the next morning, I had to had time only to get up and go catch the uh, see if I could find a ride to the ferry landing and leave the island. Well, I was in a car on the way to the ferry landing, and suddenly there was this tiny little black speck in the sky, way far away. And it started coming closer, and I pulled my binoculars out, and I checked, and yes, it had the right kind of wingspan for an eagle and the right kind of wing width. And uh, it came closer and closer, and then I could see that the head and tail were in fact light-colored. It was a bald eagle, and it was headed straight toward us. And um, I asked the driver if she could stop in the middle of the road, and she did. And uh, we were in a little convertible, as it happens. You know, these coincidences, or maybe not coincidences, sometimes happen. And we sat there in the middle of the road, and the eagle came straight toward us. And when it had arrived overhead, it just stopped. It turned and turned and turned, and turned, and made many little tight circles above our car. 
and I had the fullest view I could imagine. And when my neck got tired, I could no longer stare straight up into the sky. I uh, put my binoculars down, and that's when the eagle broke its orbit, turned one more time, and headed back to that spot on the horizon from which it had appeared. How was that different from the rest of your life? Well, this is not the sort of thing one talks about in an academic program in general. Um, most of our academic... And, and that, work, wait, wait a second, before you pass that, but yet you would think when you're doing comparative study of religion and you're studying faith, faith-based you know, societies, that that's a very deep part of the mystery tradition within all of them, is this connectedness through consciousness to everything. Just not everywhere, I suppose. <laughs> uh, just, just not everywhere, and it's and uh, you know we're we're a, a society of skeptics. You know we are taught to be skeptical, and uh, there are some very good strengths in having a skeptical mind and asking questions and making sure that you don't go down a path a, a thinking path too easily. You know there are real good reasons for making sure something is real in the world in, instead of just, you know, believing whatever, whatever you want to believe or, or you know, believing everything you see. Um, so I, I think it's a good, good idea to um, be reasonably skeptic. At the same time, there really wasn't a lot of space in my own faith tradition, uh, which was Christianity, and in most Western religions, you know, um, mm -hmm. in general, there wasn't a lot of space for really uh, practicing communion with earth. The, um, the faith and the salvation rests um, more outside of earth. And that's why Christianity and Judaism are theistic religions, because uh, in a theistic religion, God, there's a certain separation between God and the physical world. And I was becoming discontent with that separation, and I wanted to see the divine in this world. And when the eagle appeared, and when the eagle appeared especially uh, after I had um, spoken to it, um, it gave me an opening for exploring how the divine, how spirit is found in the visible world, in everything we see, in every body we see. You make an interesting statement about animism and sort of the misunderstanding of what that is, but it really is a very honorable and integral way of being in relationship to the world. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. Well, in religious studies, there's a there's a century old definition of animism, which says it's about spirits. You know, people who are animistic are people who believe in spirits. And um, more recently, like in the past 25 years or so, anthropologists of religion have begun to reassess that definition. And they've begun to listen more closely to animistic people such as the Ojibwe of northern North America, uh, which is where um, the anthropologist in, who's, um, whose work this draws on, where he was working as an anthropologist, was among the Ojibwe. And he listened more closely to them, and he thought, you know, they're not talking about spirits per se. It's not like 
the division between the material world and a, a non-material spiritual world, that's not like the major division in their thinking. It's more, it runs more along the lines of personhood. So he started talking about animists as those who see personhood in the beings around us. For animists, a tree may be a person, or a rabbit may be a person, or, or clouds may be persons. And when you approach the world that way, then the world becomes a place of dialogue, a place of conversation where everybody is speaking, and it becomes our responsibility as humans to pay attention and see if we can figure out what these other kindred spirits are saying or sometimes not so kindred spirits, and figure out how to stay in balance by paying attention to what they need and want as well as what we need and want. Of course, this is the native tradition worldwide, and you can go to any part of the planet and any culture that still has its intact, its intact relationship with nature. You hear this kind of sensitivity and heart-centered mindfulness. It's, it's not that it's cultures that aren't intelligent. It's that it looks at intelligence as something much bigger than mind or something much bigger than individual human intelligence. And, exactly, and I, something much bigger than the human mind. There are, there are many kinds of intelligence spread throughout the various species. They each have their own kind of intelligence, and the, the, the smarter we are, the more we'll pay attention. Exactly. And and I think that's the beauty of listening to the elders speak in the traditions of the world, which has been an interest and passion of mine, of seeing how all these different traditions ultimately teach the same thing about unity consciousness and about reverence, that each of us is just one little part of this much bigger reverent field that we encounter all of the time. When you got sick, you write, your book is a very personal book, by the way. You know, it's interesting because from the cover and the title, you think it's just going to be a lot of stories about animals, but it's really a beautiful memoir about your own relationship to nature and your own relationship to others and the loss of others, whether they were humans in your life or animals in your life. When you got sick, how did your illness really affect your opening? Because it does for most of us. I know it did for me. Uh, yes, indeed it did. Um, I was in my early 30s and I uh, contracted a chronic illness, chronic fatigue syndrome. And it had a lot of neurological, I had a lot of neurological symptoms. So I lost the person I knew to be me. Um, my abilities to do the various things went away until in some of my worst times, I couldn't even comprehend reading. And I mean, I've been a reader since I was a very small child. So I had to give up piece by piece the the ingredients I knew to be me. And from that place of complete vulnerability, um, I began to, and because uh, Western medicine didn't exactly help, I tried uh, some of the avenues that are recommended for chronic fatigue syndrome, and nothing really helped. And I was desperate to get well, and so I started looking further. And um, I think that's when my worldview kind of cracked open. I had been meditating for years already, so I was somewhat on that path. But um, I became more confident in uh, trusting my own insights and uh, reaching to new and unexpected sources if they provided help and sustenance. 
It's a beautiful story that all of us eventually reach, whether we reach it in the afterlife or here, which is to sit quietly and listen to that inner voice, which is the voice that connects us to all of divinity. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be right back. Our guest, if you've just joined us, is Priscilla Stuckey. Her book is called Kiss by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature. This is 21st Century Radio, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. We'll be back after this. Hello, I'm James Olson, author of The Whole Brain Path to Peace. My website is thewholebrainpath.com. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and I just loved being on this show, and she is such a great interview. I know you're going to enjoy whatever you listen to. The Whole Brain Path to Peace. I found it to be one of the more um, useful books for anybody, particularly people who are interested in bringing peace to the world and in their own life. And, you know, I think as a as sort of a tag, Priscilla, to your own book, you, you talked about something that Olson would categorize as the left hemisphere, meaning when the colonists came to this country, um, you know, seek and destroy was kind of the the premise, even though, you know, our wonderful movies make the the beginning of this nation, rather than just killing all the Indians, make it look like the colonists somehow or other were really going to settle the land. Talk to us a little bit about your own research on that. Yeah, I uh, grew up in Ohio, and um, I didn't quite realize that Ohio had been heavily forested and that the settlers really clear-cut the land. And they did that throughout the Northeast, throughout the heavily the, the heavy North American forest. There seemed to be a frenzy to get rid of the trees, to get rid of the forest. And, of course, they needed to plant their crops. They needed to plow fields. But they really destroyed the trees um, to a greater degree than was necessary if they just wanted to plant some crops. So I was uh, intrigued and horrified by this urge to remake the landscape. Um, And I discovered that it goes back, that that idea or the the conceit that we can remake nature actually goes straight back to the Roman Empire. Um, Cicero boasted in the first century B.C. that... um, we make irrigation, we plant, we plow, we turn the rivers, we control the waters, we make, as it were, another nature, he said. And that idea that we can conquer and control nature has been with us for a very long time. And so, because it's a long habit, it's going to take some attention to move in some new directions. I love the fact that you know Maladame Somme because his book, probably 15, maybe 20 years ago when he joined me on his book of Water and Spirit, a beautiful spiritual autobiography, and there aren't many that sort of stand in the tradition of Paramahansa Yogananda, another great spiritual autobiography. How did your work with the Somes, he and his wife, impact your life? Well, I was called in to be a book editor. Actually, the, the, the very first contact I had with them was a workshop. Uh, when they were still married, and they uh, lived in Oakland, and they led a workshop on grieving. And I uh, was uh, in a deep state of mourning, and I was suffering depression at the time. I'd undergone a lot of losses. And I attended their workshop on grieving, and there I heard them talk about community. And they said, in the village, when a woman gets pregnant, we all get excited because we wonder 
who this new person is that the ancestors are sending us because obviously this person is bringing gifts that we must need. So they said, we work real hard to find out what this new person's purpose is in the world. And then it becomes our responsibility as a community to help that person remember their purpose. And I was so astonished because that was a very different understanding of community than I had grown up with. Um, community, um, where I came from and to a certain degree throughout um, mainstream American culture, we tend to think of community as something that needs to keep people in line. The, the government is what punishes wrongdoing. And uh, you can read it even in the documents of the... Uh, the American Revolution in American history, Thomas Paine wrote a uh, pamphlet called Common Sense. And in this uh, pamphlet, where he was agitating for revolution, he said, society, namely our interrelationships with family and friends, society is based on our goodness, but, but uh, government is based on our wickedness, and we need government to keep us in line. So there runs this thread of thinking throughout political and religious history of Western cultures that the community is something that, that, that it's a disciplinary force. It helps restrain the, the badness in people. And from Maladoma and Sobonfu, I heard a completely different view of community, a completely different experience of community, that the community, whether the small community or the larger community, knows individuals and helps them, supports them in carrying out their purpose in the world, in bringing their gifts to fruition in the world. And it was a very liberating um, moment. And then later, uh, I've been a book editor for years, I got called in to help Maladoma um, uh, to edit the book that he was working on next after Of Water and the Spirit, and it became the book, um, let me see if I remember the title, uh, the community rich. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking. That's on the all right. Title. Um, but um, in in uh, as an editor, you know, one thing an editor does is get inside the head of the writer. So as I worked at that process of getting inside what Maladoma was saying, I found the those ideas that came from his village. I found them taking root in me. It was a really wonderful experience. When I when I had the chance to talk with him on air um, on Future Talk and the Zo Show, two other shows I hosted before, I found the clarity of his own life experience of having been sent away from the village to be brought up in sort of the Christian theology and be trained by the fathers, and then eventually having a calling back to his native tradition. It is it is really like I mentioned James Olson's work. The difference between using your left hemisphere primarily or your right hemisphere. And one, the left, which is pretty much the dominant theme in our culture, is very um, very separatist, very analytic, um, very aggressive, versus the right hemisphere, which like his second book, which I have my producer look up, was called Ritual, Power, Healing, and Community. That's really a very right hemispheric, very feminine um, approach to being in the world. And James Olson's thesis and his whole perspective is that we really need to bring them together. It's not like 
just having a right hemisphere of being intuitive and artistic and creative and integrative will work if you don't also have the analytic, the self-preserving, the 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 part that defends what's holy. And and so when you look at your own work about defending what's holy, that's sort of what I think about your work. I love that you told the short story of a 1920s forester, Adolf Leopold, was it? Aldo Leopold? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you share a little bit about that? Because I thought it was a really, I loved the way you wove so many beautiful historic truths into your own journey. Well, Aldo Leopold was a forester uh, back in the 1920s and 30s, and um, the famous story about him that he told near the end of his life was that um, he was a hunter, and he was hunting in the um, canyon country of Arizona, and he shot a wolf down at the bottom of this canyon by the river, and um, he went down, he scrambled down the, the rim of the canyon, and came upon her to find she was dying. And um, he went closer and she grabbed the butt of his rifle and, and uh, fought with her last ounce of life. And he said when she died, he saw the green fire die in her eyes. And it became, late in his life, he looked to that experience as the start of his change, Aldo Leopold eventually became a person who taught the whole forestry community, the whole uh, discipline of forestry. Now, if you go to forestry school and ecological school, you will learn what what Aldo Leopold taught, which is that we are one humming community. An ecosystem is a community, and you need to watch out for all its parts. And we can't just think we can manipulate one piece of it and kill off the wolves so that we'll have more deer to hunt, which is what he thought at the beginning of his life. And at the end of, of his life, he came to understand that every piece of the ecosystem, every member of the eco-community is precious and makes a contribution, even if we don't understand it. He advocated for not trying to destroy something until we uh, unless we can understand it. When you look at your own life and the title of your book is Kissed by a Fox, how did your fox encounter change you? And tell our audience a little bit about this. Well, I was uh, in the middle of these uh, difficult years of depression um, and grieving. I uh, found it a little difficult to talk to people. So I started volunteering at a wildlife rehab center um, in the Bay Area and most of the time I was feeding baby birds, which was something I just loved doing, and I still love doing it, although I haven't done much of it recently. But um, I worked there one winter after the baby birds were all uh, grown and fledged, and so one of the jobs that winter was to give the mammals, the resident mammals, the coyotes and the fox, their dinner. And so I would take out their dinner bowls and... Um, Rudy, the red fox, uh, was a very friendly character. I wouldn't say very friendly uh, in the usual sense. He was friendly once you knew him. Um, these, and, were, these were animals that were in this wildlife center because they had been injured? They had been injured or orphaned and couldn't be released for one reason or another. And there had been a space at the wildlife center to take them in. So they were long-term residents. So okay. we knew them. 
They were in outdoor enclosures during the day. We brought them into nighttime enclosures at night. And so it was my job to bring Rudy in uh, to his nighttime enclosure, lock him in, give him his food bowl. And I decided to do something extra. I decided to make friends with him because he was he was a really sweet character. So I would crouch on the floor next to his bowl and week by week I would crouch a little closer and one night he circled around me slowly sniffing me and then when he got back around to the front of me he stared at my face and then he lifted one paw and put it on my knee on the ground and raised himself vertically and stared directly into my eyes right in front of my face and of course I was frightened because these are still wild animals even though they've been residents for a long time and I wondered what he was going to do next well he opened his jaw stretched out his tongue and started licking the inside of my mouth (laughs) and I was so startled I didn't know what to do except keep as still as I could he wasn't hurting me, so I waited to see what would happen next. And after he'd licked the inside of my mouth for a few seconds, he withdrew his tongue, let himself down to the floor, and went to his bowl and began eating his dinner. And I thought, I've just been French kissed by a fox. <laughs> but I had no idea what it meant. Um, years later, I picked up a book on animal tracking wildlife tracking, and I looked in the chapter on foxes, and there I found out that when foxes are very young, after they've been weaned but before they can go out and hunt on their own, they stay in the den while their parents go out and hunt. Their parents find food, they eat some of the food, they begin to digest it, and then they come back to the the cave or the den. And when they arrive, the baby foxes come out and they start licking the parents' mouths and that um, lets them know what's for dinner and it stimulates the parents to regurgitate the food and feed them. So I found out he wasn't kissing me after all. He was really checking the menu. (laughs) We're going to take a brief break, then we'll be back with our guest, Dr. Priscilla Stuckey. You can find her at her website, Priscilla, P-R-I-S-C-I. L-L-A Stuckey, S-T-U-C-K-E-Y dot com. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. This is Matt Roney with the Earth Policy Institute, www.earth-policy.org, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. So, Priscilla, one of the things that you wrote I, I thought very important to share was your discussion of contacting the will of a place like a canyon or a mountain or a pond or a stream or a tree. Talk to us a little bit about your own experience with this and what you mean by it. Well, it started uh, with a creek that ran through my property in Oakland, California, in the Oakland Hills. Um, And to me, it always starts with love. I loved the creek. And um, there was a little... um, street that ran along the creek and the neighbors used to walk their dogs up and down the creek and it was a a sanctuary from the noise of the urban and noise and the pollution of the urban area and uh, so when we pay attention closely when we love a place that closely um, that that well and that deeply 
it, it can speak to you. And so um, our little canyon with its uh, sanctuary of a street was threatened by development. And um, so I ended up being part of a group and helping to lead a group that started a land trust to preserve the creek from development and preserve this walkway, this sanctuary, this little piece of a park so that neighbors and bikers and anyone who wanted could enjoy the peacefulness that was there. Now, contacting the will of a place, I felt that that place was helping us. I felt that um, it wasn't just human beings acting on behalf of a place. Um, The creek really wanted to be preserved. There were ways in which Uh, We received breaks at the timeliest of moments. We received miracles of gifts of parcels that helped the land trust get on the map. There was something bigger going on than just these few people trying frantically scrabbling to raise money. Something bigger was going on. And if you love a place, if you pay attention to a place, I think you can find that heart of a place and know what needs to be done. And and that's true whether it's your backyard or the little area around a garden apartment that is shared. And it's really a beautiful truth, which is why we don't have to go anywhere to change the world. We have to pay more attention to where we are in the world. And It all starts with love, doesn't it? You don't have to go out in the wilderness to love nature. You can love the tree uh, beside the urban sidewalk, I mean, I, I, most, most of the, the book takes place uh, when I was an urban dweller. So it's uh, less about wilderness and more about loving the beings who are nearby. And I think it's also having reverence for the wild within us. You know, we, we, the cemetery-grade lawn symptom uh, that has really sort of polluted so much of suburban watershed through the chemicals and the lawn care is, is really an illness. I mean, I've always felt that way. We have some grass, but we have mostly woods. But I've never understood this drive to poison, you know, your own lawn so that the birds and the rabbits and the dogs and the cats and everybody else gets sick, too. I've just I've just never understood it. But that's why I call it cemetery-grade lawn care, because it's it's really what you see when you go to a cemetery. Versus, as people will tell you, and as the guests on the show have said, you know, have some rain gardens, plant the bushes that the bees like, plant things for the butterflies. If if we really just pay more attention to what's available to us, we each become really restoring stewards of the land, whether it's a quarter acre or a hundred acres. So I think that's Definitely. very important. And, and pay attention to who's native to your area, because they're the ones, the native plants and the are the ones who will attract the native bees and will attract the native insects. And then you've restored a community the way it likes to be. And the plants, you know, I I live in a place where we get uh, ferocious spring snowstorms, but the native plants know how to deal with that because they evolved. They grew up in that, that climate. And so they know how to, they, they adapted strategies to deal with spring snowstorms. The tulips and the roses are kind of goners sometimes, but the native wildflowers, they uh, they thrive in spring snowstorms. You know, one of the things I found interesting about your book, Priscilla, Kissed by a Fox, is that throughout this memoir, you include your dreams. Why did you feel including your dreams is part of this story? Well, 
listening in all its dimensions, I think, has been an important part of my life for a long time. Um, I began my own spiritual journey by tracing my dreams, recording them, thinking about them, pondering them. And that type of listening, listening for something, some wisdom that's larger or wilder or bigger than the rational mind. So even though I was, you know, a graduate student all these years, in the rest of my life, I was really searching for exploring and opening the door to um, a, a wisdom that was greater than the rational mind. And um, so when I became ill and began listening to nature in more depth, it seemed like a continuation of listening to what was inside me. The, 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 the self that was inside me was the same as the self that was in the trees and the animals and the, and the grass and the flowers. And so the listening just developed new dimensions. And as a matter of fact, when it came to writing, um, I experienced writing as a process of listening too, not in the sense of taking dictation. This was a, a difficult intellectual exercise. It took every piece of my analytic brain, but it also took a willingness to be open to hearing what wanted to be said on each page or in each paragraph. And when I got to the end, I realized, you know, I thought I was doing all the work, but in fact, I was being guided throughout the whole process, too. When you look at all of the different kind of directions your life has taken you, whether it's working with these animals or studying religion, writing books, teaching others, how would you describe your purpose now? I think I have a purpose to help inspire people. Um, I think I have a purpose to help people find their own truest voices in the world. I've done that for years as a book editor. Um, I'm branching out, uh, doing a little bit of that and helping people to connect more deeply with nature and find their own truest path in life by listening to, the, to their own authentic voice and the voices of nature as well. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm someone who uh, makes a way for the, a wisdom that is larger than the rational mind. At least I hope to do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think you do a beautiful job of it. And your book is, is a telling of a life that has sort of been stretched in many directions and has become very whole. I love, by the way, your various stories about your dog, Sapphire, how you got the dog, half the dog. I mean, I'm a dog lover. I joke that if I could ever stop moving around, I'll have a hundred dog farm. <laughs> <laughs> Sapphire was a special being. She had one blue eye and one brown eye. And yeah, I tell some good stories about her in the book. There's lots of stories I didn't have room to put in too. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you know, you strike me as having a telepathic capacity, which I do as well. And I think a lot of owners of animals become telepathic with their own pet, and if they can get quiet, they can discover that they can do that with many pets. So I do animal readings for people. Primarily, it's domestic animals, but not always. And, and I have found similar to what you describe in your book, it's really about listening, which is what I learned as a broadcaster. For many years, I thought it was about talking. And then I learned it was really about listening. 
It's about listening. It's about becoming quiet. I like how you mentioned getting quiet. It's, it's really key to get quiet, get out of the way. You know, it's so easy to project what we want onto another being. And it's very important to get quiet enough so that you can tell the difference between what your own mind wants, where your own mind wants to go and what you're receiving from outside your own mind. Mm-hmm. And and of course, meditators learned that earlier than just people who just sit and be quiet, because there is a difference between projection, imagination, perception, and reception. So receiving something is very different than perceiving something. And um, I, I find when I talk with dogs in particular, that it's it's they show you, well, for me, not not all telepaths work the same. Some hear stories, some see stories, and I'm sort of given almost like a foreign film with subtitles, only they actually tell me the whole story in an instant. It's not like it goes on and on for hours. It's that they can show you six years of life in an instant. And I've always found that so fascinating, the way that the spirit and consciousness operates, which is, for me anyway, very quick very entire. And then I have to take all the time and analytic, you know, capacity to try to break down all the steps of it. Do you find anything similar to that? Uh, Yes, I do. And I think of uh, Temple Grandin, the animal Mm -hmm. scientist and autistic person who says animals think in pictures. Yeah. And so it seems to me that each species has its own intelligence, its own way of of communicating. And I also want to call attention to how important it is to start with empathy, to start with love. Mm -hmm. I had a teacher who talked about um, speaking with your animal as um, the process of opening the doors of the heart. And it really requires that kind of heart openness to to be available to what someone else needs and what someone else wants to say. The interesting part for me over the years, whether it's with animals in the woods or animals that live in our household, is that they are direct in the way you're saying. I mean, I remember this feral dog that I found that came out of the woods and I kept calling her Bella. She was a beautiful, lean dog who was obviously a stray and didn't want to be caught, but I started feeding her at night. And then one day I was in the woods and she she ran up to me, kissed me, turned around, ran mm. away, and I never saw her again. And it was a very similar kind of just an understanding that this wasn't a feral dog that wanted to become a domestic dog. This was a dog that <laughs> lived in the woods and this is what this dog did. And there's but there's always this human part that, oh, you know, I need to heal it and hold it and keep it and make it part of our little tribe. And, and I think people who work in in wildlife in general will tell you the the best we can do is to provide for them but let them be who and what they are yeah there's a big difference between sentimentalizing wild animals and um loving them Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. we don't want to turn them into our little creatures they are not and 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 part of what's so important about listening and being still in their presence is so that we can uh perceive uh, who they are in the world, rather than just projecting what we want them to be. And I think that's true just about all our activities in the world. And I think for, for those of us who are real nature lovers and have grown up that way, and it seems most of my guests had a rich relationship in their youth with nature, and it has carried out throughout their life activity, is that it's really learning about listening. 
It is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Being I quiet, listening, and uh, there's a great deal of communion to be found in the world. Um, the world is a friendlier place than I uh, than I thought before I began this journey. Any closing words you want to share with us? Any advice you have for those in the audience who say, well, I love nature, but I don't know what to do for it? Pay attention to your own yard. Pay attention to uh, the people in your house. Uh, Human beings are part of nature, too. And um, if we uh, practice opening our hearts to the ones we love, if we practice opening our hearts to uh, the people we meet, um, there's a lot of richness to be found in life. And um, it comes back down to love, I think. Loving and listening. Listening is a form of love, isn't it? Very much so. And and all of the sacred societies teach this, that silence isn't empty. It's really full of everything. We just it's a lovely a, picture. Yeah, and I, and I have found it to be true. We just live in a very noisy culture with just a lot of noise all of the time. And our, a lot of people are very um, unfamiliar with silence and and are afraid of silence, particularly our young society, growing up with their twittering and their flittering and their whatever else it all yeah, is. Yeah, we're, we're, we're restricting our listening to human voices. And mm-hmm. what I'd like to encourage people to do is to expand our listening instead of restricting it. Expand it to the beings who are less like us and who have very important roles to play in the world. Amen to all of that. Priscilla Stocky, thank you so much for being our guest. You can find more online at Priscilla, P-R-I-S-C-I-L-L-A Stuckey, S-T-U-C-K-E-Y dot com. Her book, Kissed by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature, a Counterpoint 2012 release.